I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of retired Air Force Colonel Merrill Tangsdale. In the military, we throw around the term elite quite a bit. The reason I reached out to her was because she actually embodies that term. In the course of her career, she became a YouTube pilot, and for those of you who don't know much about this platform, it's a reconnaissance aircraft that has been in service since 1955, with fewer than 1,500 qualified pilots in its 66-year history. So not only is she a member of this small population of aviators, she's also the only African-American woman in its ranks. In this episode, she's going to share what it's like to view the Earth from 70,000 feet and what she's learned from that experience. We're also going to have a great conversation about diversity and what it feels like to not look like everyone else in the room. In addition to having you two pilot on her resume, she's also recently added reality TV show as well. Merrill is currently a contestant on season two of CBS's Tough as Nails, which airs Wednesday nights. And we get to hear what that experience was like for her and what she learned about herself in the process. So let's jump right into this interview. Please welcome to the show, Merrill Tingsdale. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm excited about this. You're the first ever U2 pilot I've ever spoken to. Oh, man, you're in for a treat. <laughs> awesome. So tell me what it's like being a U2 pilot. In all honesty, it's a pretty uh, awesome experience. Number one, there's not that many of us. So we're in a very small group of people. I think at this time, there's less than 1,100 people. At the time that I applied and got accepted into the program, there was less than 800. So, I mean, we're talking 16 years ago, we've only graduated another 300 pilots. Wow. Yeah, I love the community. It's small. They're a tight group of people. And the mission, I mean, the mission's been going on since uh, 1955. So it's been 65 years since the U-2 has been flying. And it is just such an adaptable aircraft and has and done so well over the years. Can you tell me just, I mean, like what that experience is like? I'm a ground guy. I've jumped out of a plane a couple of times. I've been on some helicopter rides. But uh, I've never flown at the height and distance and, and speed at which you flew. So what is it like? It is definitely a sight to behold. The fact that we're flying above 70,000 feet 
And at about 50 to 60,000, you start seeing the curvature of the earth. This is a site that most people in their lifetime will never see firsthand. They may see it on a video or something, but they will never get to see that. To see the amount of stars unobstructed by lighting pollution nowadays is few and far between. So to be able to see all that, it is just, it's a spectacular sight. Did you ever get philosophical seeing that, you know, like just really bring things in perspective for you? I think for me, it does. There are times when, you know, you may have problems that day or there are things going on in your life and you're up at that altitude and seeing how small things are from your vantage point. And you think about the maybe the drama or the things that are in your life. It's so small in comparison to what's really out there. It puts it all in perspective to me, like, don't sweat it. You know, it's small things. You can figure this out because, you know, the universe is vast and there's so many other things out there that are probably so much more important. So from a philosophical point, yes, it does. And the fact that as a YouTube pilot, you're seeing things that most people will not see. I mean, you say to yourself, this is a damn good job. This is a place to be in life. So don't take that for granted. Don't take what you have for granted. Is that philosophical enough? (laughs) That is. I feel like we (laughs) could just ponder the mysteries of the universe just based off that answer alone. Now, one of the things that, you know, I've watched a couple interviews with you and tell me about focus as a YouTube pilot. You have to have a lot of focus and mental fortitude and mental toughness. It's not easy for a pilot to sit in a very confined space with a pressure suit on, not being able to hear as well, not being able to feel as you normally feel with your bare hands. You're breathing 100% oxygen the entire time. And you're in an aircraft the size of, you know, a telephone booth. And you can't, every time you move around in it, when you can, you generate so much heat that you start sweating. That in itself is not for everyone. When you have an emergency or you have something that goes on or when you're flying the aircraft, you have to be focusing on tasks. You can't let those little things bother you or distract you. And for me, there are a couple of things that I think about to maintain focus. I mean, one of them is that, especially if I'm doing a mission, you got to focus on that task at hand. The fact that you're up there flying, you're up there for a purpose. And if you can't do the mission or you can't focus on it, then you're not doing anyone else any good. And you might be hurting people or putting people in harm's way or not getting them the information that they require. Can I ask you about that? You talked about staying focused. And that honestly is one of the things that I've struggled with is just, you know, training my mind to be in the moment with what I'm doing. And so is that something that just came natural to you or did you have to work on that? I think when you're flying an aircraft, I mean, you have to think ahead. You want to be ahead of the aircraft that they teach you that in the beginning. You can't, there are times you can't be in the moment because you don't know if you're flying and you say, okay, if an emergency happens and you're not thinking of where you can land at any possible time, that might bite you in the butt. You might fly in an area where you have no option, right? But when you're actually doing the mission, you're focusing on what sensors are working or where you're flying, you have to be in that moment to make sure you're where you need to be at a specific time. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. And I I guess I understand that. Like, why? It's just how. Like, how do you 
is it just like because of the necessity of your job, like the necessity of flying that you just, you're just focused on it and then you land the plane and then you, you know, just relax a little bit. Right. It's the necessity of the job. I mean, there's a lot riding on what imagery you're going to be able to collect to disseminate to the guys on the ground. So, you know, as, as, I want to say as a ground pounder, is that a, it's not a disrespectful term, is it for you? No, no, we're, we're friends. Okay. So you can, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> so I just, you know, cause I don't know the, all the army lingo very well. And, you know, being on the ground, if they desire some information or information that has to get out there, you have to be focused to, I know the penalty. If I don't, it's not an option for me to lose focus or to let things that are happening in my personal life affect the mission that I'm doing at that moment. You know, you have to compartmentalize. And I think as a lot of military people, we have to do that. I mean, we're human beings. We suffer from the same thing that civilians do, whether there's, you know, problems in the family or, you know, you have family members who are sick. But at that moment, for the next couple of hours or the next six months, you have to focus on the task at hand because people's lives depend on it. So that's what allows me to focus and compartmentalize those things that are in my life. So I can do what I need to do. Have you found the the skills that you learned doing that? Has that helped you in other areas of your life as well? Absolutely. You know, now I do personal training and I train with clients. So when I do that, to me, I like to use fitness as a conduit to motivate and inspire people. Inspire people, whether it's to get in better shape, to lose weight, to have better self-esteem to get them prepared for military life if they're interested, or just to talk to them and talk to them about how to strategically plan for your life. I can't let my personal problems or my family problems creep into that. It is not helpful for me, and it's not helpful for the person that I'm trying to help. So I turn that part off momentarily so I can work out with someone for an hour. It helps me focus on them and maybe use the situation that's going on with me to help them. You know. So I use that in my life daily. Now, my family life and everything, thank goodness, we're doing okay. No one has COVID. My family's doing well. But, you know, there are times when you struggle. And I've had that happen in my military career. And there were times I was able to compartmentalize. There were times that I struggled and it was noticeable. You know, I had to pull back and get my life in order. You made a conscious decision to go down the path to be a YouTube pilot. And you did that, you know, a little bit further along in your career. And so did you know that that decision was going to make you stand out? And pushing that a little bit further, like how important is it for leaders to do something just a little bit different that, that makes them stand out from the crowd? So when I applied to the YouTube program, it was out of the fact that I still wanted to be an astronaut. and when I looked at the YouTube program, I looked at how can my resume be different from others when it came to applying for NASA when the time came. You know, I wasn't in test pilot school, which is a huge thing that they want you to have. But I said, huh, if I get high altitude time, you know, pressure suit time, this may make me stand out just a little bit differently than others. Now, I think for leaders, whether you're officer enlisted and you're going up for promotions, I think 
when I first started in the military, there were tracks, you know, as a, as a pilot, you know, you need to do your fleet tour, then you needed to do your shore tour. And then you may do a non-vol, like a, a disassociated tour. There was these tracks that you went down. But I think as I started going further in the military and how the military started to change and realize that diversity and what you do is key and and going down the same track may not be the same. It seemed like people were more open to, okay, doing a little bit of this, you know, learning how the other services work, getting your joint job. What else can you do as a pilot flying different aircraft? As I progress further along the military, it seemed like my resume, the fact that I was in the Navy, I flew helicopters. I was a T-6 fixed-wing instructor for the Navy and the Air Force. I went to do high altitude reconnaissance in the U-2s. I was a commander down at U-2 flight tests and program depot maintenance. Those things that I started to do at that time, I didn't realize how much I was standing out, but I was. My resume, where I had been, just made me a little more unique and a little bit more versatile in certain areas. I've heard you say before that you weren't focused on being the only black woman YouTube pilot, but you were cognizant of it. And so like, how, how did that affect how you approached your job? Look, yeah, I realize I'm a black woman. Yes, I know that. But when it comes to flying, you know, I just wanted to fly different aircraft. When I looked at the YouTube community, it was about my resume standing out. It wasn't because there's not a lot of women, there's not a lot of African-Americans in the field. But once I get to a place, I mean, there's not many people who look like me. As I was, you know, moving up in the in the Navy, there was not that many. I mean, in my helicopter squadron, I was the only Black female. I was one of, I'm thinking off the top of my head, was maybe three of us at the time I was there, from 96, 97 to 2000. So the fact that where you're at you stand out. You look different. And I tried to not let that affect how I acted because I just wanted to be part of the group. I wanted to be part of the Hilo Brotherhood, the Vipers, or the YouTube community. So I tried to be myself. And don't get me wrong, there's certain things that you do to get along to try to assimilate. We all, I think we all do that. I guess they use the term coding now. So yeah, there, there's some of that, but you're always cognizant. And for me, there's pressure on myself to perform at a level. So no one thinks that I'm here because I'm different. It's just, I'm here because I'm good. And the cool thing about flying aircraft is the aircraft does not care what your gender or ethnicity is. Either you can fly it or you can't. And I can fly aircraft. I love that. And I love that you said that like, you just remain focused on what you loved. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. So, Meryl, you mentioned that you, know, you were joining these, this group and, and you stood out because you were different. 
Was it hard to maintain that focus on just worrying about flying or was assimilation just always in the back of your mind? So I won't say assimilation, but it's, it's the fact that you don't want to perform poorly. So yes, it's always in the back of my mind. I think if you ask any person of color or any woman, anyone who's different, I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, most of the aviation community is comprised of Caucasian males. Okay. So when you're a one of, or one of few, but especially a one of, and you stand out, there's always, there's always something hanging in the back of your mind that you have to perform at a higher level or at a high level, because you don't want for a moment that, you know, someone looks at you because you didn't do well and say, oh, the only reason why you're here is because of blank. I think if you ask a group of people who are people of color or females, they'll probably say they feel that to some extent. And you have that hanging over you. And you also have the fact that if you don't perform well, how hard is it going to be for the next person who is similar to you coming up through the ranks? Are you going to make it easier or harder for them? So, I mean, that's just being real. I've talked about that before. It is almost exhausting to feel that way all the time. And it's a huge pressure and burden that I think most people in this position put on themselves. I can only tell you, can you change it? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'll let you know when I come up with an answer on that one. It's a very different perspective. The only thing that I think I can remotely relate to that, and I'm not saying in any way that it's, it's comparable, is that there's not too many operational officers in the United States Army that have a blog and have a podcast. And I'm always worried about, do my actions reflect what I'm writing about or what I'm talking about? And, you know, like, does the audio match the visual? And so that that's just, as long as I've been doing that, that's just something that's been in the back of my mind the entire time. But again, I, I know it's in no way compared to what you've, you know, gone through throughout your career. Yeah, well, no, I mean, but you have a point. I, I will say one time I tried to explain this at Maxwell Air Force Base at the um, Air Command Staff College. We were having a talk. And a buddy of mine, um, he was uh, he was a teacher there, and we actually knew each other. We actually flew together. We flew helicopters in the Navy. And he came up to me at the end, and he said, wow, that resonated with me, because I felt like that when I worked at AFRICOM. And he's like, you know, I'm the only one in the room and he's a white male and it happens. It just doesn't happen as much, (laughs) but he understood what that felt like. He got a taste of it and he, he didn't like it. So imagine, you know, what you're feeling right now and the pressure that you put on yourself. You know, I always say, imagine that, you know, increase it a hundredfold and it's constant. It's, you know, it's that, thing that you just can't get rid of. I mean, I know, you know, people are talking about diversity and inclusion, but, you know, is there, will it always be like that? Maybe. It depends on your level of interest. It depends on who gravitates to these particular fields. All you can do is make the opportunity available and see what happens. So when you're one of, regardless, it's just, it's really tough. Again, Meryl, I appreciate that. And so you've been members of obviously plenty of diverse teams, but you've also led diverse teams. 
Could you talk about some of the lessons that you've gotten from that? Yes. When you have a diverse group of people, (laughs) there will be friction. (laughs) And not in a bad way. The reason why you want a group of people that are diverse, not only, just as my opinion, not only in ethnicity or gender, but even in the military and background. So you want, you know, I guess an infantry person with a defender, with someone who flies, who does aviation. And the reason why is because they bring their particular MOS to the table and their experiences and their perspective. But with that comes some disagreements. And I want to say arguments, but it's not in a bad way. You have debates. They may get heated, but everyone's professional enough that even if it gets heated, we come to a resolution and, you know, no one leaves with any hard feelings. But the cool thing is that you get all these different ideas and perspectives on the table so you can make the best decision as possible. And my last assignment at the Pentagon when I worked as the director of inspections, across the board, my staff was incredibly diverse from the backgrounds to what they did in the military, to the gender, to ethnicity. It was great. Um, We had some great conversations and we had some great loud conversations, but it was okay because we knew that was going to happen. And we all said, hey, as long as we're professional, it's all good. Did you ever try to find common ground among your teams? Absolutely. I mean, within the discussion, you do find common ground. You'll find common ground for the most part. And if you don't, at least there will be an understanding by everyone of that perspective. And there's a level of respect that is learned throughout that. So when we go to the boss or when we have to bring a message forward, we can all talk with one voice. And then if your particular group, like say one of my policy writers, she was a master sergeant. She was a security forces member. When her security forces people balked at the idea, she was able to explain and articulate why this was a better idea and, and say it in a way that other security forces people could understand that. And, and that's what I enjoyed about it. So yeah, there's definitely common ground that is gained by that, by those discussions. As uncomfortable and as heated as they may be, as they become sometimes, you know, in the end, you know, I think there's some understanding, some healing, and uh, you can move forward. So speaking of diverse teams, you're on a reality TV show right now, correct? That's correct. (laughs) We're recording this on a Tuesday, and the show that Meryl's on is called Tough as Nails, which airs uh, Wednesdays on, on CBS. Can you talk a little bit about like what that experience is like? Because I just, I couldn't imagine going from in the military, what I would like, I term is like Shawshank prison, where we're all on the same <laughs> to going on this show where you're you know, competing against people of all these different backgrounds. Right. So number one, I had the honor and privilege of being selected to be on season two's Tough as Nails. And uh, it has been or it was because we filmed it already. It, it was an amazing experience. I did not realize how great this could be. I, I always, I tell people like, uh, I think thousands of people applied and 12 of us were picked. And it was like being invited to Wooly Wonka's Chocolate Factory when you got that golden ticket. Because it was the experience of a lifetime. Phil Kogan, the executive producer and host, 
he is incredible. He's an incredible human being and has lived a very interesting life. And we got to see a lot of that. And when you see him on, whether it's The Amazing Race or Tough as Nails, he is the real deal. What you see is what you get. He is passionate. He cares for the people around him. He cares for his production company. He cares for the contestants and their well-being. I can't say enough good things about him, but the experience itself, like I said, amazing in the fact that you take 12 people from all different walks of life, like in the military, and you put them together in a highly competitive, stressful situation. You put them together as teammates and you put them together as individual competitors. And as teammates, you have to work together very quickly or you're not going to win the competition. And you have to put aside differences or put aside maybe um, perceptions that you had and you got to work and the work is hard. You know, you get together and you do this competition where it is labor intensive and it makes you tired and you have to have a lot of mental fortitude to get through it. And you have your teammates to help push you along. So it reminds me a lot of the military, you know, you got a mission to do. It's highly stressful. It's competitive. Step in the military, you know, the penalty for not getting along and getting the mission done, mission failure to result in destruction of property, death, you know, a whole bunch of things. In this case, and tough as nails, it's just you lose the competition, but there's money involved. So you don't <laughs> want to do that because there's people who are working in the trades that the money is important. So you want to be on your best game. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, it reminded me of the military days. My teammates, uh, I'm on Savage Crew. My teammates are like my brothers and sisters. You know, I do anything for them. I learned a lot about them in those weeks that we competed. And uh, man, there's some great people. There's some hardworking people. Great work ethic. I've spent the last couple of years just working in various assignments, working in the special operations community, working in NATO, it's always when I'm confronted with folks that aren't like me or that are from different backgrounds that I feel like I just learn a little bit more about life, you know, like the realities of life. Did you have any beliefs or thoughts that just kind of were turned on its head doing the reality show as you're interacting with these folks? No, because I saw the first season and I knew the people that came on the show were type A personalities hardworking people. What I was surprised at is that the production company, how many military folks or how many people who love the military were on the production staff and how nice they were and the stories that I heard from people like, you know, maybe a camera guy, you know, served or flew or was a crew chief. It was interesting hearing these stories or they had family members. And I really, you know, how much they really appreciated the military presence on the show and off the show. So that was a really, it was really nice. Yeah. Did you learn anything about yourself from doing that show? Because, I mean, that's a whole nother realm of stress and, you know, just knowing, (laughs) hey, like, I may do something now, but, you know, millions of people are going to watch it in a couple months or a year, whenever it was filmed. What I learned about myself in this show is that I have so much more to do. (laughs) Oh my goodness. What I learned about the reality show is just how important my story is. 
and how important my story is to get out to people. It was funny when we made the introductions for the cast members on the show, we hadn't talked to each other until we were sitting on the truck in the first episode. That was the first time we actually spoke to each other. People were going all around and talking, and I was really impressed by their stories. And then when Bill came to me and asked me what I did, and I told people, the look on everyone's face, some jaws dropped, and they were like, wow, that is incredible. The term living legend came out, and it's hard for me to say, and it kind of just took me aback. And then people were like, man, I want my kids to meet you and all this stuff. And, and it just, I don't know, put it in perspective because I don't think on those terms. I just say, hey, I'm just doing my job. I have a decent story. And it's nice to get out and motivate and inspire people. But at that moment, I realized how powerful and impactful it was. And I said, okay, let's continue to get this message out, especially in the events that have been happening since last year leading up to the filming of the show. And I wanted to, you know, do the best that I can and inspire people in that manner. And once the show was over, I kept thinking on how I could continue to do that. So that's one thing I learned about myself. When you're a person that has a talent or a gift or an opportunity to help others, you have to seize that and make the best of it. You can't just let it go by, especially now, especially when people more than ever need some hope and some help. Got to step up to the plate and get it done. I love your message, Meryl. And one of the things that I was thinking about while we've been talking, I told you at the beginning of the interview, I suck at being able to stay focused. You mentioned Golden Ticket, you know, when you were on this reality TV show. And I'm like, man, like a female pilot who's a member of a group of people that numbers only 1,100 since 19, what you said, 65? 1955. Yeah, 1955. You're like, yeah, I just got a golden ticket. Like you've gotten two golden tickets, um, <laughs> you know, like in your life. And it's not luck, right? Like we're not lottery tickets. What do you attribute that to? Do you attribute to your work ethic? Like you're, you know, we were talking before the show about just, how important work ethic is. I mean, what, what do you attribute that to? Because twice now, you've not only had a door presented to you, but you've like kicked the door open and walked through it. Yeah, I attribute it to hard work pays off. Maybe sometimes you don't know what the end game is, but always being prepared when that opportunity arises. So you're in your job. How do you elevate? How do you get more education? How do you become better in whatever job you're at? Just learning the basic entry-level stuff is great, but everyone can do that. How do you make yourself better in whatever position you're in and set yourself apart? For me in the military, it was looking at some jobs that I can potentially take or requesting some things that might set me different from the rest. Sometimes it was my boss that said, I want you to do this, and I didn't want to. As much as I may have hinted towards, no, I did it anyway. And then when I did, you do the best that you can. You're in this situation. Make the best of it. You know, they always say that bloom where you're planted. I mean, there's some truth in that. Make the best of where you're at. Learn as much as possible and see what opportunities come of that. Because it will be ready to jump on that opportunity. You know, so far, so good. Been working out for me. That's some great advice. And you talk about this mission of inspiring people. And I'll be honest with you, you've inspired me just in the, 
the 50 minutes we've been, we've been talking today. If our listeners out there want to learn more about you, you know, want to follow you on social media, how can they stay in touch with you? So if you want to follow me on social media, I'm DragonLady788 on Instagram. I'm on Facebook under Meryl Tengestall. Easy, my full name. Although my last name is, that's my husband's fault. I have MerylTengestall.com. You can contact me via email there. That's about it. Those are my biggest platforms. I'm on TikTok as well, but I'm a terrible dancer. So I have a lot of old TikTok dances when COVID hit. Kind of fun to do during the COVID time. You'll see me and maybe catch a glimpse of my family doing the hot dog for all those people who have uh, young kids know what hot dog is from uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So, <laughs> yeah, I've got a three year old. I'm very familiar with the hot dog dance. Yes. <laughs> and my last thing, I'm coming out with a book that talks about my life's journey from A to Z. So be on the lookout for that. It should be out in a couple of months. Awesome. I, I'm an avid reader, Meryl, so I can't wait to read a copy of it. Thank you so much for your time today, Meryl. Again, like I, I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy right now. Tough as Nails is in full swing and people are asking you left and right to come speak. So I really appreciate you making time for From the Green Notebook. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon.